C.S. Lewis wrote that a man cannot always be defending the truth. There must be a time to feed on it. In a few moments where most of us are going to personally engage in the celebration of the Lord's table. Celebration which gives us the opportunity to feed on the truth of God's redeeming grace. This morning we have already engaged in celebration of sorts, celebration of many things, God's character, the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the joy of our salvation, the community of sharing with one another, sharing the same Holy Spirit that's been given to us if we are in Christ. Those are just to name a few things. We celebrate things all the time, don't we? You're gonna, some of you are going to be celebrating a football game tonight, of which I will probably not be a part of. <laughs> I'm just not a football guy, that's all. I'm a football guy like the football overseas, soccer. But I probably will turn it on. But celebrations, I mean, we, we're, the more closely tied to the celebration we are, the greater the significance the celebration has to us. Is that right? And so if there's no personal connection, usually there's no meaningful impact like me in football. Case in point, a few weeks ago, my wife and I were with some friends at a restaurant and some, uh, the whole wait staff starts marching around the room and singing happy birthday to one customer. You've been there, right? You've probably been the recipient of that. So we joined in, you know, the celebration and half-heartedly though, but we went through the motions, yet even though we were part of that activity, it wasn't very meaningful to us. Why? Because we were not on the inside track with those people. This is a very relevant idea to the body of Christ, especially as we consider what we're about to celebrate today in the Lord's table. Month after month, There are those who gather in the church on Sunday mornings and who participate in the celebration of the Lord's table, but spiritually don't engage. Pretty scary thought, isn't it? Is it true of you? Taking communion together is a pretty serious affair. Biblically, it's reserved only for those who have prepared themselves and not simply by accepting the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection through personal faith, but also by evaluating where they are right now in their relationship to him. Is that relationship progressing forward or is it on the downhill slide? It's a big question to answer. This morning, all of us want to make sure that we're not on that downhill slide. So we want to make sure that we're not exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for something else, namely ourselves. And so I invite you to journey outside of yourself this morning to honor God as God and to give him thanks from a humble and sincere heart. So as we approach the table of communion, Jesus' table of fellowship this morning, there's no better way to prepare our attitudes toward God and each other than to begin by honoring the Father in heaven from whom comes every perfect and every good thing. So I'd like you to turn to Psalm 103 this morning. And I want to use this psalm 
as our framework for approaching our communion time together, not so much as a text for a sermon. I'm not going to unpack it expositionally like I normally would a scripture, but I want to use it as a framework, as a guide for our celebration. It is ideally suited for such an approach. Psalm 103 is really a hymn of thanksgiving. There are many ways to show gratefulness, but something I read years ago really defined what our attitude of thanksgiving should be toward God. The Maasai tribe in West Africa have an intriguing way of saying thank you. Translators tell us that when they express thanks, they bow, they put their forehead on the ground, and they say, my head is in the dirt. In a similar way, Another African tribe expresses intense gratitude by sitting for a long time in front of the hut of a person who did them the favor and literally say the words, I sit on the ground before you. These tribes may understand well the biblical concept of thanksgiving. And I think I understand better why it is so difficult for us to do those kinds of things because at its core, thanksgiving is really an act of humility, isn't it? It's a recognition of grace that we've received. It's a realization that we have been highly favored and singled out as the object of someone's attention and blessing when we actually have done nothing to deserve it. Friends, let me be as blunt about this as I can be. As those on the receiving end of the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, don't you think it's time that we stopped burying our heads in the sand and started putting our heads in the dirt? Before God? Listen to the psalmist David's Hearts in the first two verses of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Have you forgotten? All of us are guilty of forgetting his benefits at times. We take them so much for granted. Why is that? Uh, not totally out of touch, are we? There's a reason why we don't constantly rehearse and recall his benefits. And it's more than just simple absent-mindedness. It comes right out of the scripture. And I hesitate to say it, but it's true. It's pride. It's this thing called entitlement. And there is a glaring absence of true humility in us when we have that kind of an attitude. Want to see a classic biblical example of this? Just turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verses 24 and 25. If you don't want to turn there, I'll read it to you. Listen to this out of the Good News Bible. About this time, King Hezekiah fell ill and almost died. He prayed, and the Lord gave him a sign that he would recover. Miracle. But Hezekiah was too proud to show gratitude for what the Lord had done for him, and Judah and Jerusalem suffered for it. 
Hezekiah's illness was cured. His life was saved. Yet, in the New American Standard Version, it says he gave no return for the benefit that he received. Why? Not because he forgot, not because it slipped his mind, but because the Scripture says his heart was proud. And sometimes we do the same thing. We forget how much undeserved favor we've received from God. We get a little puffed up because God is blessing us, and we think that it's because we're such great prayer warriors or we're such great Christians that God must be putting his hand of blessing upon us, and we come then to expect it. And I struggle with that. It's one of my personal struggles. Max Lucado once learned this lesson in the midst of a trying week when everything for him was going wrong. His car broke down. He was, he was in a foreign country, and he was supposed to be taking from family members on a sightseeing journey. He had his video camera. Car broke down. They ended up having to walk in a pouring rain, downpour storm. By the time he got to the place they were going, he realized that he had left his camera on the whole time, and he was filming the inside of his camera bag. <laughs> then, on top of that, the rain completely ruined the camera. On and on, he had a few other things he lists in there. But anyway, he learned the lesson about this whole thing, about his complaints and his pride and his entitlement when, when while stopped in traffic, he encountered a destitute little boy named Jose collecting change on the streets of South America. Just a contrast of his own selfish complaints versus that boy and what he lived with on a daily basis was enough for the Holy Spirit to convict Max. And in his book, Six Hours, One Friday, Max writes these words. He says, God sent this boy with a message and the point the boy made was razor sharp. You cry over spilled champagne. Ouch. Your complaints are not over the lack of necessities but the abundance of benefits. You bellyache over the frills, not the basics, over benefits, not essentials. And then he said this, and this is convicting right here. The source of your problems is your blessings. Jose gave me a lot for my dollar, Lucator writes. He gave me a lesson on gratitude. More aware, gratitude is this, more aware of what you have than what you don't have. Recognizing the treasure in the simple, a child's hug, fertile soil, a golden sunset, relishing in the comfort of the common, a warm bed, a hot meal, a clean shirt, and no one has more reason to be grateful than does the one who has been reminded of God's eternal gift of salvation. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Thankfully, Hezekiah in Second Chronicles 32 and verse 26, we find that he came to his senses. It says, Then Hezekiah humbled himself and repented of his pride, as did the people of Jerusalem, so the Lord's anger did not fall on them during Hezekiah's lifetime. Isn't that great? He repented. God responded. Friends, we need to come to God this morning crucifying any pride that may be in us and clothing ourselves with a humble heart of thanksgiving for all of his benefits. We need to say to our Savior, Jesus, I sit on the ground before you. For all that you have done for me, 
My head is in the dirt. So the first way we can prepare ourselves as we come to this table this morning is by viewing it as a personal celebration of our thankfulness. Look at the first five verses with me again. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, and who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. What will you bless the Lord for today? What are some of the benefits you've received that you simply cannot forget? If I were to ask you to list six or seven things on the back of your bulletin that you are grateful for, eternally grateful for today, how long would it take you to list them? Go ahead, do it now. Just just do it. Need a jump start? All you got to do is look at the verses I just read. Verses 3 to 5, right? He forgives us. He heals our diseases. He's given us life. He's shown us compassion. He satisfies us. He fulfills us. And he gives us spiritual vitality. He renews. He renews our youth. Some of us need that youth renewed, don't we? We're not feeling too youthful. Not only do we need to approach communion with a personal celebration of thankfulness, and you can continue that list throughout this service if you'd like, but also as a meaningful commemoration of his graciousness. His graciousness. Look at verses 6 through 12 here. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel. In other words, he's not necessarily hiding everything. He's revealing things. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Praise the Lord for that. Nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This table is a a table of commemoration. If you were to read Luke 22 or 1 Corinthians 11, you would see that, right? What do we see on the bulletins all over the place during communion Sundays and churches all across the world? Do this in what? Remembrance of me. It's a commemoration. Augustine called it a visible word. Communion table causes us every time we sit around it to remember that Christ experienced death on the cross in our place. Theologically, that's called substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. Isn't that fancy? You need to know those terms because it's under fire right now in even evangelicalism even. Evangelicals are actually calling the doctrine of penal substitution into question. 
How far have we come? What that means is simply this. Christ died instead of us. Pretty easy if you think about it that way. Paying the price for our wrongdoing, have any of us really grasped that? I don't know. I'm going to read you an excerpt from a book that you all know. Lying the Witch in the Wardrobe. Set in World War II at the estate of an old professor who had agreed to house four children from London in his country home till the war was over. Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, they stumble upon this enchanted wardrobe, right? At least to the magical na- land of Narnia. I really think it's Scotland, but it's magical. This land they discover is ruled by the white witch who has placed on the, a spell on the land so it's always winter, never Christmas, right? But the true ruler of Narnia, Narnia the lion Aslan, the Christ figure, has been roused and everywhere there are traces of a thaw and coming of spring. Well, when the children finally meet Aslan, guess what? Edmund has already been enticed by the witch and joins her ranks. And with the promise of taking his rightful place to rule at her side, Edmund betrays the others. Later in the story, the witch turns on the boy and arranges to have him executed. When Aslan tries to get the witch to release Edmund, she trumps his request by reminding him of the deep magic they had agreed upon before the dawn of time. Every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, she sneers, for every treachery I have a right to kill. To free the boy, Aslan offers to be killed in his place. And the witch and all her evil court are elated at that offer. In a time and place for Aslan's sacrifice are determined at night on the hill at the stone table. A great crowd of people were standing all around that stone table. And though the moon was shining on many of them, carried torches which burned with evil-looking red flames. But the people were ogres and months with monstrous teeth and wolves and bullheaded men, spirits of evil trees and poisonous plants. Howls and all kinds of noises come up from the creatures. And then for a moment, the witch herself seems to be struck with fear as Aslan makes his way to the stone table and she recovered herself and gave a wild, fierce laugh. And she says, the fool, the fool has come. Bind him fast. So they all bind him. They're shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave, though had the lion chosen, he could have wiped them all out. But he made no noise like a sheep led to slaughter. Even when the enemy, straining and tugging, pulled the cord so tight that they cut into his flesh and they began to drag him toward the stone table, stop, the witch said, let him first be shaved. Utter humiliation. The hags holding four torches stood at the corners of the table. The witch bared her arms and she had them, uh, had she had the previous night when it had been Edmund instead of Aslan and she began to wet her knife and it looked to the children when the gleam of the torchlight fell on it as if the knife were made of stone, not of steel, had a strange evil shape and at last she drew near 
And she stood by Aslan's head, and her face was working and twitching with passion. But his, he looked up, his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. And then just before she gave the blow, she stoops down and she says to Aslan in a quivering voice, And now, who's won? You're a fool. Did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact was and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. You see... The story of Christ's crucifixion is one of many, many of us heard in some form or another since childhood. Our familiarity with that story doesn't breed contempt, but it does breed complacency, says Ken Geyer. Often inhibiting us from feeling about Christ's crucifixion the way we should feel. Imagine the atmosphere at the cross, like the hill at the stone table. Calvary had the full attention of the forces, the full forces of Satan. Satan was there, certainly, along with the grotesque cadre of his of henchmen. Imagine the brutality of the soldiers at that time, the tauntings of the rabble around the cross of Christ. The curses of the criminals on either side. Imagine the humiliation of Christ's aloneness and his nakedness, the degradation, the darkness. Three hours of darkness. The abandonment and the full weight of the world's sin pulling against the nails on his body. If we had been there, we would have been full of fear finding everything that's happening too horrible to believe, closing our eyes at it. The problem is, is we don't go there. We don't go there, do we? But Lewis takes us there to see it all, to feel it all, to hear it all. And at the cross, we see how Jesus lost his life and something of how we are to lose ours. What if in our daily lives, we started living like Jesus? See, Lewis's masterful fairy tale illustrates what God has done to us, for us, through Christ. He's paid the price himself. And in addition, he's bestowed on us provision which we did not deserve. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad that God has not dealt with us according to our sins, as it says in Psalm 103? Aren't you glad that God has not rewarded us according to what we deserve, as it says in verse 10? He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. I'm glad about that. Because in him we find grace, that's getting what you don't deserve. And we find mercy, That's getting what you do deserve and not getting what you do deserve. All those who are in Christ have a blanket pardon for all of of their sins, past, present, and future. You believe that? 
According to the Bible, when we enter into an intimate personal faith relationship with Christ, we have complete forgiveness. Not partial, complete, total, utter forgiveness. God cast aside all of the things which has alienated us from him completely and for all time simply because of what Christ did. He went to the stone table. He went to the cross willingly, silently. That is an astounding thought. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 say, for he, says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. By the blood of Jesus Christ, our guilt is taken away. It's a done deal. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, it says, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west. So far as he removed our transgressions from us. I love it. And he did it as a father has compassion on his children. That's how much he loves us. God didn't wait for us to make the first move, did he? He came to us in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, and offered himself. That's the heart of a compassionate, loving, no longer angry father. He knew that we were destined to lose everything to destruction. He knew that we were frail and we were weak, unable to get ourselves out of the spiritual mess we were in. So he sacrificed everything that he had. He was broken in death, but he ultimately raised to life so that we could have life beyond our wildest imagination, life eternal. Colossians chapter 2, again, verses 13 and 14. When you were spiritually dead because of your sins and because you were not free from the power of your sinful self, God made you alive together with Christ and he forgave all your sins, all our sins. He canceled the debt which listed all the rules we failed to follow. He took away that record with its rules and nailed it to the cross. Satan has nothing to accuse you of ever again because Christ took it all away if you're in him. What this table represents, what Christ offers to all who come to him is complete forgiveness. The only responsibility we have is to accept it, to receive it. Pardon is available, but only for those who receive it. We, are, we were prisoners. We were in bondage to sin on death row destined for destruction. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son in order that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons, the scripture says. Those are not just words. Those are meaningful words. Those are powerful words. They're life-changing words. Psalm 103, verse 13 says it, just as the father has compassion on his children... So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. If you are in a right relationship with Christ, you have all the compassion of heaven at your disposal. And what that says to me is that we celebrate this table as a family, sons and daughters, 
if you're not in the family because you don't know Christ as your Savior, God extends an invitation for you to become one of his family. Because Jesus died for you personally. And you must accept him personally before you share in the table. The whole observance of communion is to commemorate the sacrifice that he made for everyone in this room. But more than the commemoration, it's also a declaration that God is still saving people by the same means, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only gospel. So I urge you to take a moment and examine your heart. Is your life in the right place with Jesus? Are you in the right place with Jesus? It's interesting that the Lord's Supper is one of only two events that are recorded as part of the upper room experience that are recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus' prediction of his betrayal is the other. intriguing to me that those are the same two events which Paul highlights in his explanation of the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in verse 23. So I believe that in every celebration of the Lord's table, the same two aspects can be represented by people who sit in the, in the congregation. I know this is going to be difficult to hear, but as you come before this table this morning, you could be in either one of those two positions. You could be. A disciple of Jesus or a betrayer of Jesus. You're either intimately related to Jesus Christ by receiving him as your Lord and Savior through faith or you are an imposter who sits at the table, goes through the motions, partakes of the meal and then leaves to betray him at the first opportunity you get. That's what, G- that's what Judas did. It's exactly what Judas did. One of the 12 at the table, Jesus washed his feet and he knew full well the whole time that he was going to be betrayed by him. So at any given time, there could be, you you know, people, those two kinds of people could be here. Which one are you? It's a big question. Jesus said, he who's not with me is against me. Are you in the right place with Jesus? So before we eat this bread and drink the cup together as a family, we must also evaluate whether we are in the right place with each other. Listen to the way the message puts it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he's a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. Because the Lord's Supper is a family meal. If we're reconciled to God, we ought to be reconciled to each other. The gospel demands it. Despite our great diversity as people, we are all one body in Christ. This table is an expression of that oneness a demonstration of Christ-like love. And so the question that looms before us is, your heart clean? Is your heart clean? What, how's your soul this morning? What's the condition of your soul? 
This is a time for real confession. Because confession halts denial. It does, doesn't it? Josh made that very clear last week. We've got to stop denying the fact that sin hurts God and it kills us. It's time to admit that we need him and we need him right now. The wonderful truth of the matter is that no one, not one person in this entire room or in the other room ever need fear judgment because his free gift of salvation is available to even the most hardened heart. As we prepare ourselves to share in the Lord's table, we approach it not just with an attitude of thankful celebration and as a symbol of meaningful commemoration. We approach it with the mindset of a humble consideration of his faithfulness. Again, in Psalm 103, verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind is passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. When we consider the portrait of faithfulness and love of our Father painted on the canvas of the table, how can we not come away changed by that? The fact that every time we celebrate communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes ought to remind us that no matter what happens, no matter how unsure the times, no matter how hard the struggle, no matter who disappoints us, the Lord is faithful and will never leave us or forsake us. So let us hold fast, Hebrews 10 says, the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And Josh did a masterful job of bringing that out last week. And I know sometimes those just seem like words and maybe they don't mean much to a person that's struggling with a broken marriage or grief beyond one's capacity to bear or a terminal illness or a hateful son or daughter or a self-destructive addiction. But the fact is, God is faithful to his children to the bitter end. He's there. He's with you. He cares about what's happening in your life. He knows exactly what and how you're feeling. You know why? Because of what Isaiah said about Jesus, that he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. But he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we're healed. As I stand up in the balcony during worship sometimes on a Sunday morning, I sometimes scan all of you. I'm not trying to stalk or anything. And I wonder how many of you have a difficult time rejoicing and praising God because of some emotional pain or intense grief that's going on in your life. And I stand there and I know 
There may be one or more of you unable to experience joy in this celebration because of some trial you're experiencing. In fact, it may actually be painful to sing some of the songs that we sing. Seeing other people's joy only accentuates the loneliness that you might feel. I've been there too. Some people react by not coming to church in order to avoid that pain. The fact is avoidance will not get you better. It'll make it worse. Ask anyone who's doing it. Are they getting better? Worship in our day is often equated with joy and celebration, a kind of pep rally, right, to inspire thanksgiving and excitement about God and about who he is. While this is a legitimate act of worship, it is an incomplete act of worship. We tend to deny our suffering in favor of celebration, but to disregard the suffering we encounter is unhealthy and it's inauthentic. The New Testament scriptures enjoin us as the community of Christ's people to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Ken Geyer writes, Jesus was a man of sorrows, we are told. That was part of his beauty. Our sorrows acquaint us with his sorrows. Apart from suffering, there is no, there's a part of Jesus we cannot know. If there is a part of him we cannot know, there is a part of him we cannot love. And if there is a part of him we cannot love, there is a part of us that cannot be beautiful, at least here on earth. Those, those words are worth meditating on. We're just saying, because your glory is so beautiful. What glory? You know, when, when we see Jesus in heaven, I have a feeling we're going to see the scars in his hands. As marks of glory, beautiful. We can't deny that suffering now in our own lives even because God will make something beautiful with it in the end. Yet worship, even when it embraces suffering and trial, is never complete without the acknowledgement of God's faithfulness. Jeremiah, you know, was in the middle of some pretty intense emotional pain when he wrote some of the most comforting words in all of Scripture testifying to God's character and faithfulness to us. In Lamentations 3, he said, but I have hope when I think of this, that the Lord's love or tender mercies never ends. His mercies never stop. They're new every morning. Lord, your loyalty is great. And I say to myself, the Lord is mine, so I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to those who seek him. And that's what these verses say, really refer to here in Psalm 103. That kind of assurance in the Father's faithfulness is precisely what we need in order to walk away from the safety of this service out into a world of hostility and instability. The only response we could possibly have to God who put himself on the cross for us the only acceptable approach to this amazing grace of the table that we're about to celebrate is a powerful conviction of his worthiness. And that's how this psalm concludes. Look at verses 19 through the end. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. 
Bless the Lord, you his hosts, all you his hosts who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his in place, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He is absolutely sovereign. Regardless of the terrible state of the world or the trying state of our circumstances. And so we worship him with all of creation. We love him with all of our being. We serve him with all of our energy. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You see what happens here? The psalmist began this psalm with an invitation to bless God so that and, and that we would be on our knees with our heads in the dirt, so to speak. And now he concludes the psalm with an invitation for us to bless God and to be on our knees, placing our hearts in his hands. And that's what we do when we celebrate the table. So let's celebrate the table together. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, his family, And he said, take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which is given for you, broken for you. Do this when you eat it in remembrance of me. And he took the cup, gave God thanks and praise, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take this cup, share it amongst yourselves with each other. This is the cup of my blood, which is shed for you. Why? For the what? Forgiveness of our sins. Take it, drink it, every time you do it, in remembrance of me. 